6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck begins his teaching on the book of 2 Chronicles, chapters 33 through 36. Well, we're continuing our study of 2 Chronicles, and we're going to cover chapters 33 to the end tonight. And uh, last time we talked about one of the best kings of the southern kingdom, Hezekiah. But he's followed by Manasseh and then Josiah. So it's going to be a study of contrasts. To put us in a broad perspective, First and Second Chronicles, First Chronicles had the genealogies from 1 to 9, and then the reign of David. Second Chronicles focuses on Solomon, the first nine chapters, and then the Davidic dynasty that we've been going through. We're going to go right up to the end uh, until the captivity of Babylon tonight and the Davidic dynasty. Very important because this is the dynasty that's going to rule the world. Our king, the king that we have allegiance to, is the final climactic king of that dynasty. But the monarchy, of course, under Samuel, Saul, David, Solomon, split under the civil war into the southern kingdom we call Judah, and the northern kingdom it called itself Israel, which by the time we get to tonight's study has gone into, uh, been, it's been wiped out. The, the Assyrians have uh, captured them, distributed them, and eliminated them as a political entity. Judah is going to end up with a similar destiny, but with a very distinctive difference, that they will go into captivity with a commitment by God that it only lasts 70 years and they will return. And that make difference is only because of God's commitment to David, not because they deserve it. Now, First and Second Samuel takes us up to Solomon. First Kings and Second Kings parallels what uh, the Chronicles deal with, pretty much. Um, First, First Chronicles really is parallel with Second Samuel, but Second Chronicles covers from the same uh, duration that First Kings and Second Kings does. First and Second Kings being the political record, Chronicles being the priestly or Levitical record. Or putting it another way, Chronicles focuses on the southern kingdom from God's perspective. And he ha he's, he's an editor with a different agenda, if you will. And we're much closer to the end now than we were before. Now, we subsequently, previously, a couple of times ago, looked at uh, Ahaziah, Joash, and Amaziah. And uh, there we go. And I wanted to mention something to remind you when we first went through the genealogies. Remember that Matthew did not make reference to three people in his genealogy. Ahaziah, Joash, and Amaziah. Each one of these were slain. And uh, Deuteronomy 29 verse 20 says, The Lord will not spare him, but then the anger of the Lord and his jealousy shall smote against that man, and all the curses that are written in this book shall lie upon him, and the Lord shall blot out his name from under heaven. These are the, this was the the threat that God described in Deuteronomy, and uh, that's exactly what happened with these three kings, and if you look, examine Matthew's genealogy, you'll discover they are indeed blotted out for what it's worth. Shall blot out his name. In any case, last time we talked, we worked our way up to Hezekiah. He's one of the five good guys. 
Um, and so, uh, one of the best kings of the gang here. The northern kingdom went from bad to worse. The southern kingdom went, had a lot, mostly bad, but there were a few good ones, five good ones out of the bunch. And, uh, but today, uh, and Hezekiah, something that is not really emphasized in Chronicles, but is in First and Second Kings, is that God gave him a 15-year extension in his life. And that's a subject of a lot of debate among scholars because during that 15-year extension, two major things occurred. One is, um, that's where these ambassadors came from Babylon and Hezekiah made the big mistake of, of giving them hospitality and showing them all his treasures, which of course just simply set the stage for Babylon, gave them their ambition, which a generation later came and, and helped themselves. But the other thing that happened during that extension is Manasseh was born, and uh, he was bad news. And so some people try to philosophize a little bit that maybe it would have been better off he hadn't gotten his extension. But in any case, we're going to go from Hezekiah, the good king, in chapter 29 through 32, to Manasseh in chapter 33. That's our first segment tonight. And uh, Manasseh was 12 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 50 and 5 years in Jerusalem. So he, uh, he reigned a long, long time. And uh, clearly the young guy didn't learn much from his father. His father's one of the best kings, but when he takes over, it's bad news, really bad news. He set about to do, to, to do all the evil, th all the things you could think of to anger God. And as verse 2 says, He did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord, like unto the abominations of the heathen, whom the Lord did cast out before the children of Israel. You know, it's interesting You'd think they would have learned by example. Their brothers to the north had embraced idolatry and they got clobbered. God did exactly what the prophet said they were going to do and he wiped them out. You'd think that the southern kingdom would have learned something by that, but nevertheless, that's what they did. They rebuilt the high places that they're called, the altars to the heathen idols and uh, the fertility, uh, a fertility goddess and so forth. For he built again the high places which Hezekiah's father had broken down. And he reared up altars for Balaam, Balaam being plural of Baal, of course, and made groves, the groves there being essentially phallic symbols, and worshipped all the host of heaven and served them, host of heaven being the planets and so forth, and, and served them. And he built altars in the house of the Lord, whereof the Lord had said, In Jerusalem shall be my name forever. So God, this is especially offensive. Idol worship is always offensive to God, but doing it in the place that he has set aside for himself is especially offensive. And uh, he built altars for all the host of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. He not only did this, but he did it in the house of the Lord. That, in a sense, is even more insulting. And uh, so, and like his grandfather, Ahaz, he also offers his own son as uh, sacrifices in the valley of Ben-Hinnom. And uh, so verse uh, 6 there, and he caused his children to pass through the fire in the valley of the son of Hinnom. Also he observed times... In other words, he, that's like astrology. And he used enchantments and used witchcraft and dealt with a familiar spirit and with wizards. And he wrought much evil in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger. Now, what was this? They call it the New Age. There's nothing New Age about the New Age at all. It's paganism with just new packaging. What they called, uh, you know, familiar spirits we call channelers. But same, same business. And uh, so he, he indulged in sorcery which is basically defined, what is sorcery? Seeking to gain power from evil spirits. And uh, divination. Seeking to interpret the future by omens. And uh, 
Witchcraft, seeking to control others through the communication with evil spirits. So these things are obviously all related, and yet they have their distinctives. And he set a carved image, the idol which he had made, in the house of God, of which God had said to David and to Solomon his son, In this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen before all the tribes of Israel, will I put my name forever. And uh, so, most serious thing of all, he, put, he set up an image of an Asherah, if you will, uh, within the temple, which was supposed to be used exclusively by the Lord. So this is very insulting, and of course, even Second Kings deals with that in some depth. Neither will I any more remove the foot of Israel from out of the land which I have appointed um, for your fathers, so that they will take heed to do all that I have commanded them according to the whole law and, the st and of the statutes and of the ordinances by the hand of Moses. So that was God's commitment. So Manasseh made Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to err and to do worse than the heathen whom the Lord had destroyed before the children of Israel. God destroyed the northern tribes for their idolatry. And yet uh, they did even worse because they did that idolatry right in uh, the dedicated spaces. And the Lord spake to Manasseh and to his people, but they would not hearken. So Manasseh is a bad king, and he also led the people astray. And uh, God tried to, you know, correct it, but they wouldn't listen. So wherefore the Lord brought upon them the captains of the host of the king of Assyria, which took Manasseh among the thorns and bound him with fetters and carried him to Babylon. So because Manasseh and his people ignored the Lord, his punishment was swift and sure. Assyria, again, the same people that took the northern kingdom into slavery, are still a power there, and they came against uh, Judah. And uh, with great ruthlessness, they bound Manasseh, put a hook in his nose, and, uh, as if he was a wild bull or something, and uh, took him off to Babylon, which is a, was a Assyrian southern. In these days, Babylon was a, just a troublesome city-state of Assyria. They're, in the coming few years, Babylon is going to get its freedom. But at this stage, Babylon is just a... a political uh, football of Assyria, in effect. And when he was in affliction, this is Manasseh now, and this is a very interesting thing. You, you, we could spend a lot of time talking about how evil Manasseh was. In fact, the first Kings, excuse me, second Kings rendering of all of this, there was blood from border to border. And God's uh, judgment on Manasseh is very, very severe. But here, the Chronicles just focuses right in on something, another dimension of this that we, we're going to take heart in. When he, Manasseh, was in affliction, he besought the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers and prayed unto him. And he was entreated of him and heard his supplication and brought him again to Jerusalem into his kingdom. And Manasseh knew that the Lord, he was God. This evil king, the most evil of the bunch, repented. And God honored that. And that should remind you of 2 Chronicles 7.14. Remember that verse we talked about in such depth back some sessions ago? That's if my people are called by name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Then will I hear from heaven, forgive their sin, and heal their land. That's God's commitment. And that's exactly what Manasseh did. He besought the Lord as God, humbled himself before the God of his fathers. He prayed unto him and was entreated of him, and he heard as if he got hurt him. And brought him again to Jerusalem, his kingdom. And he knew that the Lord was God. So, why is this so important? Because this means that we all have hope. No matter how bad you are. Remember Manasseh. By repenting and turning from that, God 
forgave him. God healed him. And that's astonishing when you really understand his career. He was the worst of the bunch. And uh, Now after this, he built a wall without the city of David on the west side of Gihon, in the valley, even to the entering in at the fish gate, encompassed about Ophel, and raised up a very great height, and put captains of war in all the fenced cities of Judah. So he rebuilt the uh, defenses, probably in anticipation of another Assyrian onslaught. But in any case, he's... And he took away the strange gods and the idol out of the house of the Lord and all the altars that he had built in the mount of the house of the Lord and in Jerusalem. He cast them out of the city. Praise God. That's how God's measuring things. How's he measuring you? Do we have idols that should be cast out of our house, out of our life? Are we carrying baggage of some kind? And he repaired the altar of the Lord and sacrificed thereon peace offerings and thank offerings and commanded Judah to serve the Lord God of Israel. So he restored proper worship here. He removed all the pagan idols uh, for which he'd been responsible, but he, he, he uh, did restitution, so to speak. But nevertheless, the people did sacrifice still in the high places, yet unto the Lord their God only. Now the rest of the acts of Manasseh, and by, by the way, they, see the people were used to worshiping in the high places. That was the wrong place, but they're used to it, so they continued there, even though they're worshiping the Lord. So, um, now, now the rest of the acts of Manasseh and his prayer unto his God and the words of the seers that spoke unto them in the name of the Lord God of Israel, behold, they are written in the book of the kings of Israel. And the word Israel here speaks for the total nation, thus it really is talking about Judah, because the northern kingdom that called itself Israel is now gone. It's, it's, uh, the, only, the southern kingdom is the only thing left. I mention that, though, because some people make a big thing of Nomenclature. You need to realize that term is used connotatively, uh, generically for the whole nation there. His prayer also, and how God was entreated of him, and all his sin, and his trespass, and the places wherein he built his high places, and set up groves and graven images, before he was humbled, behold, they are written among the say sayings of the seers. So Manasseh slept with his fathers, and they buried him in his own house. In other words, not in the king's, but in his own palace, and not in a place of honor. And Ammon, his son, reigned in his stead. Now, one of the provocative, um, that it, because of his, his wickedness uh, as a history, they didn't, uh, he wasn't buried in the tombs of the kings, in his own palace. It's strange that we can have a king like Hezekiah, who was so outstanding, and his son, Manasseh, was bad news. That must give us pause. Because how often do we know a, a really good family, good Christian family, raising kids the way they should, and everything seems to be right, and yet those kids can turn and be rebellious. It's a very, very, not always, fortunately, and often when they do, they still they come back, like, but still it's a, there's no simple answer. It's a subject of a lot of discussion, but uh, it's, it's a sobering thing to recognize the intrinsic rebellion that can be even in a well-brought-up environment so forth. And Ammon is his son. Ammon was two and twenty years old when he began to reign, and he reigned two years in Jerusalem. He had a pretty short uh, time. He was a bad news, and unlike his father, he did not repent. In verse two, uh, 22, and he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord, as did Manasseh's father, for Ammon sacrificed unto all the carved images which Manasseh's father had made, and served them, and humbled not himself before the Lord as Manasseh's father had humbled himself. But Ammon trespassed more and more, and his servants conspired against him and slew him in his own house. His own servants 
assassinated him. So it was, uh, his moves were very unpopular. But the people of the land slew all them that had conspired against the king Ammon. And the people of the land made Josiah his son king in his stead. Now Josiah is a good guy, young, but a very good guy. He takes, he takes, uh, he takes uh, charge. Second Chronicles chapter 34, Josiah. Now there's going to be some things occurring in Josiah's life that will lead to some unsolved riddles that will be the subject of our final session after this one. But so we're going from Manasseh to Josiah in two chapters. So he's a good guy. Josiah was eight years old when he began to reign, and he reigned in Jerusalem one and thirty years. And he did that which was right in the sight of the Lord, and walked in the ways of David, his father, grandfather, great-grandfather, whatever, and declined neither to the right nor to hand to the left. In other words, he was a straight guy. For in the eighth year of his reign, while he was yet young, he began to seek after the God of David, his father, and in the twelfth year, he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem from the high places and the groves and the carved images, the molten images. So he, uh, he uh, the, uh, when uh, Manasseh had later purged the land of the, the bad things, it was just in uh, the uh, temple area and so forth. The land itself needed attention, and that's what he, so he, so uh, Josiah is purging uh, Judah and Jerusalem uh, from the high places, groves, and so forth. And they break down the altars of Balaam in his presence, and the images that were on the high above them, he cut down, and the groves and the carved images and the molten images he break in pieces, and made dust of them, and strode it upon the graves of them that had sacrificed unto them. In other words, he uh, took all their paraphernalia, crushed it, wrecked it, burned it, whatever, and uh, burned the bones of the pagan priests on their very altars. So this guy was serious about it, didn't mess around. And he burnt the bones of the priests upon their altars and cleansed Judah and Jerusalem. So did he in the cities of Manasseh, Ephraim, Simeon, even in Naphtali, with their mattocks round about. Now, I want you to notice Manasseh, Ephraim, and Simeon, and uh, Naphtali. Are these part of the northern kingdom or the southern kingdom? Northern kingdom. And obviously, you're talking geographically, not tribally. That's where everybody gets messed up. The, 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 this whole idea of the ten lost tribes is a myth, and I want you to be sensitive as you go through the Scripture that again and again that demonstrates that is a myth and uh, leads to a lot of confusion. But in any case, uh, Josiah here is cleaning house throughout the whole land, including up north, Manasseh and Ephraim, Naphtali, that's all up north. And when he had broken down the altars and the groves and beaten the graven images into powder and cut down all the idols throughout all the land of Israel, he returned to Jerusalem. And uh, now in the 18th year of his reign, when he had purged the land and the house, he sent Shaphan, the son of Azaliah and Messiah, the governor of the city, and Joah, the son of Joahaz, the recorder, to repair the house of the Lord his God. So the temple's a mess. These guys are dispatched to clean house, fix that up, repair it. And when they came to Hel Hilkiah, the high priest, they delivered the money that was brought into the house of God, which the Levites that kept the doors had gathered of the hand of Manasseh and Ephraim and of all the remnant of Israel and of all Judah and Benjamin, and they returned to Jerusalem. I want you to notice that all these tribes, Manasseh, Ephraim, and so forth, the so-called lost tribes, and they certainly weren't lost in that day, uh, they were actually sending money for the repair of the temple. And incidental to our thing, but I want you to be sensitive to that as we go. And they put it in the hand of the workmen that had 
the oversight of the house of the Lord, and they gave it to the workmen that brought the house of the Lord to repair and amend the house. Even to the artificers, the builders gave they it to buy hewn stone and timber for couplings and to floor the houses which the kings of Judah had destroyed. Okay. The men did the work faithfully, and the overseas of them were uh, Jehath and Obadiah, the Levites, and the sons of Merari, and Zechariah and Meshullam, of the sons of the Kohathites, to set it, for, uh, set it forward, and the other of the Levites, all that could skill of instruments of music. Also they were over the bearers of burdens, and were overseers of all that wrought the work in any manner of service, and of the Levites there were scribes and officers and porters. And when they brought out the money that was brought into the house of the Lord, Hilkiah the priest found a book of the law of the Lord given by Moses. This is a very interesting statement. It's pivotal. It changes the history of Israel. See, when they, they, they went in the house, they're doing repairs, they're remodeling, and the priest found a book of the law of the Lord given by Moses. Scholars suspect that this may be referring to the, an original copy by Moses himself. And it apparently was so venerated that it was put in a special chest and hidden because all the copies of the Torah had been destroyed by Manasseh. He was trying to wipe out Judaism. And so he, wiped, he, he took all the Torah things to, and had them destroyed. They thought they were all gone under Manasseh and under Ammon. But as they're repairing the temple, they find a chest hidden some way, and in it they find the book of the law of the Lord given by Moses. This implies an original copy. It certainly was a very specially venerated copy. And Hilkiah answered and said to Shaphan the scribe, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And Hilkiah delivered the book to Shaphan. And Shaphan carried the book to the king and brought the king word back again, saying, All that was committed to thy servants, they do it. And they have gathered together the money that was found in the house of the Lord. And they have delivered it into the hand of the overseers and to the hand of the workmen. Then Shaphan the scribe told the king, saying, Hilkiah the priest hath given me a book. And Shaphan read it before the king. And it came to pass, when the king had heard the words of the law, he rent his clothes, he tore his clothes. He was so moved, he was so shocked to realize by reading the word of God that how far they'd fallen. And the, 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 the young king was obviously deeply distressed. And the king commanded Hilkiah and Hikam, the son of Shaphan, and Abdon, the son of Micah, and Shaphan, the scribe, and Isaiah, the servant of the kings, saying, Go, inquire of the Lord for me and for them that are left in Israel and in Judah concerning the words of the book that is found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that is poured out upon us because our fathers have not kept the word of the Lord to do after all that is written in this book. This dramatized the king how far they'd fallen. And he's concerned not just for himself, but the, all the people, the whole people, all that are left in Israel and Judah. And uh, so, so Hilkiah and they that the king had appointed went to Huldah the prophetess. Now that's, most commentators just pass over this. Okay, they went to the prophetess to find out what the prophetess had word from the Lord. This raises some questions if you're a diligent student. Why does the high priest, on behalf of the king, have to go to a prophetess that tells you the Ark of the Covenant is not around. 
the Levitical system is not in place somehow. That's usually where, that's where you know, Moses went to the, ask the Lord himself. When the tabernacle there, the Holy of Holies, the Ark Covenant, the high priest would communicate, he could communicate directly. That's obviously not operating here. That's going to be important to us later as we reflect on some of this, but let's go on. Anyway, hold to the prophetess, the wife of Shulam, the son of Turkveth, the, uh, the son of Hazra, the keeper of the wardrobe. Now she dwelt in Jerusalem in the college, and they spoke to her to that effect. And she answered them, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel. Wow, okay. Tell ye the man that sent you to me, Thus saith the Lord, Behold, I will bring evil upon this place. He had previously pronounced that. In the days of, because of Manasseh, because there was blood from border to border, God pronounced a judgment that was coming. And here she's confirming that. Thus saith the Lord, Behold, I will bring evil upon this place and upon the inhabitants thereof, even all the curses that are written in the book, which they have read before the king of Judah, because they have forsaken me and have burned incense unto other gods, that they might provoke me to anger with all the works of their hands. Therefore my wrath shall be poured out upon this place and shall not be quenched. And as for the king of Judah, who sent you to inquire of the Lord, so shall ye say unto him, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel concerning the words which thou hast heard, Because thine heart was tender, and thou didst humble thyself before God, when thou heardest his words against this place and against the inhabitants thereof, and humblest thyself before me, and didst rend thy clothes and weep before me, I have even heard thee also, saith the Lord. Behold, I will gather thee to thy fathers, and thou shalt be gathered to thy grave in peace. Neither shall thine eyes see all the evil that I will bring upon this place, and upon the inhabitants of the same. And so they brought the king word again. Then the king sent and gathered together all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem. What God is saying, the judgment is coming, because they deserve it. But because this king, this young king, Josiah, has had his heart in the right place, it won't come in his lifetime. He's going to have years of peace. It's after he dies that God will bring the judgment. That's what he's saying. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Second Chronicles. For a complete listing of resources available, please visit khouse.org. You can also call us on 1-800-K-HOUSE-1. To learn more about Koinonia Institute, visit koinoniainstitute.org. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word. Music